Welcome to Fresh Bread, a podcast of Grace Bible Church Gainesville. Pastor Brandon, Pastor Keith. Well, welcome everybody. Fresh Bread. We were right in the middle of our conversation. Actually, Fresh Bread podcast number 10. Hey, we're in double digits. We are on, right in the middle of our podcast on eschatology, and we are on Amil, Amillennial, and we were right in the middle of a discussion, and as time was running short, so we're going to, we decided to cut it and start a new, a fresh podcast so that we can keep going, because we could probably talk about this for another, I don't know, 20 hours, but we don't have enough coffee. So we're going to jump into that again, and let's let's continue what we were talking about. Okay, you mentioned Israel. I would think that for a Amil, just at 1948, would have had to have thrown them a curveball. Well, I think so. I, mean, I think that ultimately, I believe some of these views, I mean, the, the post-mill view, the Amil view, I mean, I, you know, I think we might have mentioned it in one of the last podcasts that, you know, the the accusation toward dispensational premillennialism is that we're using the newspaper to we're using the newspaper to um, to set you know have our view you know that in 1948 Israel came along you know that you know that Israel's now it wasn't a nation now is a nation yeah, there's something that we have to do with that now and we have to look we have to go back to the drawing board in terms of the of scripture and try to understand scripture in light of what's going on in the news. But I, I mean, I think what we have to recognize is that that post mill on mill were doing the same thing because, you know, 200 years ago, Israel didn't exist as a nation. And so, you know, you have these views, these, um, you know, especially the post mill view that, you know, that Israel, Israel was off the scene. And so, you know, you develop this view. I mean, as an example, you know, I even I didn't say this earlier, but um, amillennial people would would claim, you know, Calvin as being amillennial, that his views would fit better with amillennialism than any other view, and 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 I can see that. But I mean, I think what we have to recognize again, I mean, like with Luther, you know, Luther was at the, toward the end of his life very frustrated with the Jews, and so you know, it it's it, the the problem with that is is now I have to go back and causes people to go back and look at their Bibles and go, okay, well, obviously the Jews aren't a nation. Obviously they're an obstinate people. How is God ever going to use them? So it must, there must be some other answer. And I think the answer is the church and you know, that God is now all those blessings are, are being realized through Christians, through the church. And so again, we all have this tendency toward, newspaper theology, if, if you will, if you use that, if you allow me to use that term, but we all have this, you know, right now I'm going to, I'm going to look at the newspaper and see what's going on in the world. But going back to Israel in 1948, I mean, it, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise someone that holds a premillennial view, it, that holds a view that, that the covenants are going to be fulfilled. The, the Abrahamic covenant that, you know, God made promises to Israel, um, even the new covenant. I mean, the new covenant's actually a promise to Israel, and I mean that's something that that you know we can, we don't have time to go through right now. Maybe we will do a show in the future on the covenants, but but what we have to recognize it's a promise to Israel, and and that it will be fulfilled through Israel. And 
ultimately. So now I would argue that that's going to be in the Millennial Kingdom and later. Down yeah, let's do a podcast on that. That would be good. Yeah, I know a guy that does podcasts it's called <laughs> Fresh Bread. Yeah, I mean those are always good to try to try to sort through all this and and try to understand it. That's what we're trying to do. Can I? So let me ask you a question: yeah. As we go back to the church fathers like Origen and and these guys in seventy A.D., of course Israel, you know the the Jerusalem's destroyed, the people are dispersed. So when you when you read prophecy. Was it hard for them to understand, okay, there's no more Israel, the church is now front and center, and so let's read prophecy through the church? Yeah, I think that that, that does make sense, that you, know, you would begin to do that, because you know, I think that you get, to, you, know, you get past 80, 70, and you get down the road, and you're starting to really reflect on what's going on in the world, it's very easy to then see and understand that the church has now replaced Israel. Um, and I think that's where you get into some of the replacement theology uh, that that went on. Uh, you know, this is, and it, obviously we're generalizing. It's not, you know, a perfect. It's not that everybody thought the same things. I mean, we as as God's people, we're when it comes to prophecy and understanding, you know, we're a bit. Of, we've been all over the map. We're just trying to generalize. This is the general understanding and trying to get people to see at a, at a high level. Um, you know, we're not looking at one specific guy and saying, okay, this is what he believed or, or whatever. But yes, I would say in general, once Israel passed off the scene in AD 70, then, you know, I think people had to ask the question, okay, so what now? What does prophecy mean and how does this work? And I think that's where the church replacing Israel began to get its rise from. Yeah, I think it's a very normal thing to want to do because you're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I think so. And then, and we have a tendency as men, just as mortal men that are finite, that we're, we live in the world that we live in. And, and so we have a tendency to look through the lens that we live in. And so, you know, you and I live in a modern world that, you know, Israel does exist as a state. And, you know, our tendency is going to be, we and we have to recognize this, our tendency is going to be to look at them through that lens and look at prophecy through that lens. I mean, we, we're seeing things today that they would have never, you know, that that guys 100, 200, 500,000 years ago could have only dreamed of seeing. And, you know, things in ways that that revelation could be you know, the mark of the beast and different things that, that could that could come to being. You know, we're seeing that those things today given rise in the financial industries and in in the medical industry and, and, and different things that are happening and technologies that are going on that could potentially be uh, the precursor for some of the things that you see in Revelation in terms of tribulation. But we have to be careful because, again, we're looking through a lens and we have to recognize that we're looking through a lens and that we're affected by that, and that every Christian that's come before us have, have had their own lens that they're looking at um, and trying to understand these things. Even, I mean, the truth is, is that even even John, when he wrote Revelation, in terms of what he saw in his visions, I mean, he's, he's using language and understanding from, you know, a first century context. And we have to, when we, when we, as we interpret that, we have to see it from his perspective and, and the first century com, um, context and try to understand it and then now uh, give the interpretation into a 21st century context. Well, and I think also as humans, we tend to look at things in our lifetime and things have to be accomplished in our lifetime. 
I'm thinking about guys that are back in, in the first, second, third centuries that are reading even Ezekiel. When you read the, the accounts of, you know, it talks about the dry bones and Israel being reborn, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Well, how do you do that? It, it took a long time, but 1948, Israel was reborn. And that's interesting that, because you know, we're looking back at it, so it's easy in our lifetime, but in the, in, in if, for the men who are looking forward, that's complicated. That's a little more hard for them to really figure that out. I guess what we would say is be patient and trust God. He's going to do what he's going to do. Well, that's true. And, and, but I think at, at the same time, we have to be very careful too, because, you know, the, the, what we have to recognize is that the Israel that exists today, the, the political entity of Israel, I would argue has prophetic, prophetic implications. There's no doubt in my mind it has prophetic implications. But as I was saying earlier, we need to be very careful in how we view them in terms of, you know, they're not the, the, the modern state of Israel we can't see in terms of right they're not like it they're not like it was back in the day yeah i mean we we can't automatically say the modern state of israel equals israel in the past i think that they're going there that god is going to use this modern state of israel to call forth his people and i think prophetically that's what we're going to see but but to say that israel therefore i can <laughs> You know, Israel with with the modern state of Israel is going to receive all the promises that that God promised to Abraham. Um, I think that there are people that God is going to call His people from, I and mean, that He's using this modern state of Israel ultimately to call His people to Himself. But I have to be careful in how I look at that. Well, even the nation itself, Israel, the Jewish people, when in 1948, before it became a nation, there was a there was a struggle between the conservative Jews and the, the more progressive Jews. the The more conservative Jews said, "Man cannot create a nation; it has to be God." So they were waiting for Messiah to come and set it up. Mm-hmm. Whereas the progressive Jews were over here saying, "No, we need a nation because, I mean, the Holocaust really set the scene for that because, and everyone Absolutely. understands." The, the motto of, of Israel is never again. That's right. We understand that. We get it. And they, they deserve that. Yes. But it's interesting how all that came about. Absolutely. Prophetically, I think there's no mistake that, that Israel is Israel. For, I mean, that, that Israel has come back to be in a nation for God's purpose. But we have to be careful in equating the modern state of Israel with what we're going to see in terms of the fulfillment of the promises, what we're gonna—I th- think what's gonna happen is—is is that there's gonna be a there's gonna be a remnant within Israel, within the the Jewish people. There's gonna be a remnant that's that look upon Him whom they pierced, and they're gonna repent, and they're gonna come to know that they that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're gonna and they're gonna turn to Him, and they're gonna cry out to Him. And I think that's what's gonna happen. I think that's Isaiah fifty three. Uh, you know that they they're gonna see what they've done. But, but I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to, not to be tongue in cheek, but I, but I don't think it's going to be the Jewish government that's going to make a proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. No. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, and so, the political established Israel that we have today, I can't ascribe all those promises and and going back to and think that they're completely like guiltless in terms of how they. You know that I they can do no wrong, and you know that they're God's people in that sense. No, the God's people are the ones that are going to repent and turn to Him. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Zechariah, 
when they see whom they have pierced. That's right. They will understand. That's right. And like you said, there's a remnant. Yes. It's interesting to see that modern Israel really, there's a huge push and a desire for them to rebuild the temple, which I think is fascinating. Like you said, we can't hold our our, our uh, eschatology by, by looking at that, but it is interesting. It is interesting. Okay, going back to amillennialism. Yeah. Couple of things that they hold uh, that are I think are important in terms of their position. Uh, we they take a, a two age view where we we have the we have the church age and we have a future age. Um, they would look to passages like Luke twenty, where Jesus said uh, the sons of of this age marry and are given in marriage, uh, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God's being sons of the, of resurrection. And so the idea there is that the idea is that there's one age now and there's an age to come. And that doesn't give them, give any room for an intermediate kingdom like the millennial kingdom. And so, so they would they would certainly look, point to that two age understanding or two age model uh, that would that would help us understand the the way history is put together. Uh, you know, really, they would they would say that throughout the the old or the New Testament, this age is used to refer to the present course of human history, while the age to come is an eschatological age of redemption promised through the Old Testament, which is now realized with the coming of Christ and manifest for all to see in the triumph associated with his bodily uh, resurrection and exaltation. That's from Ken, Kim uh, Riddle, Riddlebarger. Uh, he, he goes on to say, I believe that the period of time between the first advent of Jesus Christ until his second advent, the time between the establishment of Christ's kingdom as described in the Gospels and the consummation of all things, is the same period of redemptive history described in Revelation 20 as a thousand years. And, and he goes on to say that this means that the so-called millennium is a present reality and not a future hope. This means that the events depicted in Revelation 20 refer not to the future but to the present. This also means that the thousand years is that same period of time in, in which citizens of this age await for the age to come uh, through uh, the fact of the present reality of the kingdom of God. And so he, he points to several passages, um, Matthew 12, 28, Luke 10, 1 through 20, uh, Luke 17, uh, 20 through 21, and also Romans 14, 17. And he also points to uh, for, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And so he sees that... that um, he would say the age to come is already a present reality in the believer of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. And so, but again, they don't see, they would see this, they would see the history broken up into, you know, this age, this present reality where it's already, but not yet in the idea that, that in, in the church, that's our, it's the kingdom has already come, but not yet because it hasn't seen its full consummation consummation. And that when Christ returns, that then he's going to inaugurate this new age that's completely different than, than what we have today. Okay, so th- that would be a strength of, of Amil, if you look at it that way, that it's a little bit more... Well, I think it makes it simpler. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, I think it makes it simpler to understand for sure, you know, where you, you know, you get into this idea of with dispensational premillennialism, you end, you end up trying to understand this age, the church age and, and how it relates to Israel. We, we kind of went down that rabbit trail a few minutes ago and how, you know, we, you know, how God is dealing with the church versus how he dealt with Israel and how is Israel going to come back into, into favor and, and how that's going to work. And you have the, the, the rapture, you know, the, of the church and that's going to happen. And when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen? And you get into then the tribulation period, the seven years. And even in the tribulation period, you have three and a half years of relative peace, three and a half years of, of great tribulation then you, after the tribulation period, Christ then comes and sets up his kingdom. And, 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 you know, then you have this thousand year kingdom. And then, I, you know, there's other complicating factors of how the judgment works. And, you know, when is the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25? How does that, how does that play into it? And I mean, it's a complicated dispensational premillennialism is, can, can become very complicated. But I think prophetically, because we're dealing with so many different texts and so many different views of, of it, I think that's why and what lends itself why it's complicated. But with the amillennial view, and to a certain extent the postmillennial view, it ends up being pretty simple. I mean, there's this age and there's the age to come, and the difference that you know the dividing line is is going to be Christ's return, and he's going to set up his he's going to set up you know his rule you know the new heavens and new earth and that's going to be it i mean it it really it really simplifies things and makes it easier for you to understand not that i not that i'm accusing them of being over overly simple i i'm not i'm not no. saying that i think that there is some complexity to amillennialism and and postmillennialism i don't think that i mean obviously they they have to deal with a lot of a lot of uh they have to deal with a lot of scripture as well. And they have to, there's a lot of different things that go into it and trying to understand. So it's, it's not that it's not complex, but I think in general, when you look at it, when you look at a timeline and try to understand the timeline and what's going on, it's a whole lot easier to understand amillennialism and postmillennialism than it is to understand a dispensational understanding of, of prophecy. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you. Is it, is, Amil kind of a in the middle between post and pre. Is it sort of a a way of trying to combine both a little bit? Because it sounds a little bit like both. You know, I haven't put a lot of thought into that. You know, and how they relate to one another. I I think if you think about it, if if amillennialism really was born out of postmillennialism, which even Kim Riddlebarger says that very thing that he's the one, you know, when you look at a, a survey of, of the different views, he's the one who said and pointed out that, that amillennialism wasn't, re- wasn't recognized as, as a distinct position until around the turn of the 20th century. Amillennialians <laughs> called themselves post-millennial. And so, you know, so you, you know, they're, they're very, very close. And, and so, you could make the case that that they do sort of are sort of fall between postmillennial and and dispensational, um, you know. And I, I haven't traced the history of it, you know, in the sense of because I mean that's the that's the same thing that would be said about uh, dispensational premillennial is that you know it's a fairly new position, 
And I think you can make the same, you know, obviously Kim Riddlebarger, who is actually a guy who holds the all-millennial position, has said that it doesn't, you know, didn't become a distinct position until around the, the beginning of the 20th century. So, so I think you could, you might be able to trace that, you know, the development and be able to see, you know, what developed first and how that developed and, and, and whether it was a, yeah, I don't know what, I guess I'd have to really study the history to know who was responding to who and why, and, you know, why all millennials, the why all millennialists came to view things the way they did and, you know, what that was a response to. Um, but yeah, so it's a good question. I, I, that I don't know that I completely know the answer. Yeah, because I, I think where they lose me, I don't know, I, I'm trying to remember if you said post, both post and uh, they believe a lot of a lot of the prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Preterists would say that it's 100% yes. I mean, there's partial preterists, you know, that have a, that take a partial view. Um, I would say I'm a futurist, so, you know, there's that... I mean, my understanding is that, you know, preterism would be that it's fully fulfilled in, in AD 70, the first century for sure. And then, and then there's a partial preterism, which would say most of the events or a lot of the events were fulfilled in AD 70, but then some are future, still future. But then there's futurists, which would say most of, most things are, especially with revelation are fulfilled in, in, in the future, future to us, future to John who wrote after, I would say most futurists would probably hold that, that John was written or Revelation was written by John in AD, AD 95 or so, but definitely after AD 70. Therefore, it was future to John and future to uh, us as well. Yeah, and that's that's where they lose me is the 100% 70 AD. That it's fully fulfilled in AD 70. Well, except for obviously the new heavens and new earth, which you know, at the end of revelation, I don't think anybody would take that view, but yeah, that it's, you know, preterist, the, the preterist view in terms of revelation 22. Yeah. And I think I misspoke last time. And I said that RC Sproul was a post. I think he was, he's a, uh, wasn't he? Yeah. I think that, you know, I think my understanding is that he's an millennial. Yeah. And Vody Bachman is Amil. Vody Bachman is... We're just throwing some of these names out so people get an idea Yes, of some of the men that that, uh, hold this view. Yeah, Sam Storms, I think, is Amil. Um, I've I've mentioned Kim Riddlebarger is Amil. Uh, Definitely definitely some big names that are Amil guys. Yeah. And, and And I would certainly, just to be clear, I see them as brothers in Christ. Um... You know, I think I don't think that we. I do think that we need to be really working hard exegetically to understand, you know, prophecy, and that we need to work hard. It's not as if I don't think it's a throwaway. I'm. I don't think that panmillennialism is the way to to deal with this, meaning that it'll all work out in the end. I do think that we need to be faithful to Scripture, and that God will bless those who are being faithful and faithfully trying to work these things out. And so I think that there are guys that are in the on-mill camp and the post-mill camp that are that are trying to work these things out, and they're faithfully trying to work through Scripture to understand. We just—I mean, it is complicated. It's not a. This is not a. It, you know, this is not a cut and dried. You know, we we pretty much agree on the gospel. You know, that for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, that is a gift of God, so that no man may boast. We, I think, you know, in terms of the reformed theology, we pretty much all agree. 
you know, I mean, we do agree on the gospel, and I think there has to be agreement on the gospel. But in terms of prophetically, um, I think there's room for us to be working this out. And what I struggle with is when we read Revelation, I believe that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, because I don't think that God would give us any kind of prophecy that we wouldn't understand, that he always wants you to see what's coming and he will let you know what's coming. And it's, it, it's some of this, the post and the, uh, are, are so abstract that it's hard to follow where they're going with it. And like you said, it's, it's that human part of us wants to go this way because it's very appealing, but, in reality, if you look at what what's saying, this is what's happening, and if we just go with what it says, it'll it'll make sense. But sometimes we we muddy the water so much just by trying to read into it our own thoughts and our own beliefs, and that's where I struggle with some of these. And hopefully, like I'm I'm glad you're you're doing your research on it and you're you're trying to clarify it for me to help me understand. Yeah, I mean, it's easy for us to, it's easy, I, you know, we talk about straw man arguments, it's easy for us to have a straw man argument, but we really want to, sp- to spend the time to understand, and it is hard. It is very difficult to, to give the right recognition and understanding and to be able to, to, be able to do their, to be able to give their argument as well as they would, right? I mean, I... I I want to, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, I mean, and I'm not, obviously I'm imperfect and, and I'm a finite man who, who has fallen. And so it's hard not to put up the straw man. It's hard to, to really try to give it, you know, it's right understanding. But at the same time, that's what I want to do is I really want to understand why that they say what they say and really try to explore their arguments and, and understand it. And so you're right. I mean, going back to Revelation and understanding Revelation and re- understanding prophetically, I think that God has helped us understand that. I don't think that it's I don't think it's something that we can just that we should just punt and say, well, we can't get it. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, Revelation one nineteen, he gives us, I would argue, gives us the outline of Revelation. He says, Therefore write the things you have seen. And I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, the things you have seen. Well, that's Revelation one. You know, he had saw he he had been given a vision of the Lord Jesus, and he had been given a vision of the seven lampstands and Christ walking amongst those lampstands. He had been given that vision while he was on the island of, of Patmos, and so he's writing the things which you have seen. That's Revelation one. The things which are, I would take that as Revelation two and three, which is the churches that existed in John's day in Asia Minor, which is the seven churches of Revelation, the things that are, which, which the, as they existed, Christ is addressing those churches as they existed in AD 95 or ish, somewhere in, in, around there. He's, he's saying, this is who they are. This is what my message is to them. It describes those churches at that time. Now, I do think that they that those seven churches have... Um, implications or, or a model, if you will, for 
the church age in the sense of each of those churches, I think, are represented. You can go around Gainesville or go around any city and you can and you can see churches that fall into each of those camps um, and and you know churches that go around the world for sure and you can see churches that suffer you know you can see faithful churches you can see churches that are apostate I mean all of the different various lukewarm churches all of those various churches that that are in in revelation 7 but I do think that those churches did exist historically and they existed when they existed when John wrote, he was right that Jesus was speaking directly to those churches and speaking uh, to them as to, as to the way they were at that time. So the things that are, and then it says, and the things, so he says, therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And so I think from Revelation 4 to 20, John is giving a vision or is giving, you know, these are visions that he's seeing of things that are going to take place after AD 95 after that. So now, you know, that it's not specific as to when that's going to happen. You know, it's not specific, you know, whether it's going to be a few years down the road or if it's going to be a thousand years down the road or, or what, what it's going to be. And we still are waiting even today, but for the full consummation of these things, but from chapter four, all the way to, all the way through um, Revelation 20, really Re- Revelation 22, these are the things that are going to take place after these things. So, I mean, again, I mean, that's the divinely given, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit outline of Revelation. And I think we can understand Revelation by looking at that at that verse and that, that Jesus actually gives to John in, in Revelation 119. So going back to what you're saying, it's absolutely eminently understandable if we if we do the work that we need to do and and you know it's interesting because you know prior to that um in chapter um chapter one verse three blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near and so there's even a blessing for those who work hard to understand and and work hard to interpret and to get a right understanding of of what's going on here and what's interesting about that is is going back to tying it back to you know post mill guys would say you know they're christianizing the world world is getting better that has an impact on how they're living this in this life you know pre-mill guys can have a tendency toward more pessimistic uh, more pessimistic view that has a that has an impact on how we are living in this present age and and so under a right understanding of prophecy and a right understanding of how God is working in this present age will lead to being a faithful Christian. And therefore, if I'm a faithful Christian, God is going to bless me. So there is a blessing in reading and understanding Revelation and all the prof- prophecies, reading them and understanding them in the right way as God intended to understand them. Yeah, that's it. There's a blessing. It's the only book that has a blessing, if you read it, right, is Revelation. And there's a reason for that. Yes. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that goes back, I mean, again, because it, it has such an impact. Understanding prophecy, a right understanding of prophecy has such a great and incredible impact on how I live. Like I said, I mean, it. I mean, I, the Post Mill guys would say it's, you know, they're out there working hard because the world is getting better. You know, the Pre-Mill guys, maybe, maybe we're thinking that Christ is going to come back tomorrow, so I don't have to do anything. Well, neither, neither I don't think either one of those 
is the right way to look at it. And so, uh, as I've said many times, we have to hold our theology in tension. And, you know, I can't live, I, I don't think I'm Christianizing this world. I don't think that's what's happening. But I am, but I am, I do think that I'm, my job is to go make disciples so that, that people will be rescued from the wrath to come. Paul says it, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I mean, he talks about being rescued from the wrath to come. And so I, I mean, this, I do see this as a rescue operation, but I mean, I have to be, I, I need to be living, you know, in light of who Christ is in order to be the most effective at doing that. I need to live in a way that that's winsome and people see my life and it's, and I'm living in, in holiness and, and, and I'm, my life is, is logically organized in such a way that it, that shows who God is and that there is a God and, and that he's a, he's a righteous and he's worthy of our worship. And so, you know, if I'm just, you know, if I just am living in a car because I think that, you know, tomorrow is coming, then I don't have a, you know, I don't take care of my family and I'm not feeding my family, going back to even the second Thessalonians reference, if I'm not taking care of what I need to be taken care of, you know, I, am I really going to be winning people to the Lord? You know, if I'm date setting and I'm always wrong, am I really winning people to the Lord? No. So I need to have the right understanding of, of prophecy in order to live in a way that's winsome and, and that when I preach the gospel to them, it actually is a gospel of hope because Christ is going to return. And, he, and I'm preaching a gospel that if, I, if others believe it, they will be saved from the wrath to come. And that's the reason we're doing this these series podcasts on eschatology. Absolutely, because I think it's critical. Yeah, I mean, especially it's. I think it's it's critical because of what I think it, you see going on in culture. I think in terms of we we just did the podcast last late last week with you know, it came out the early this week um, with the Nashville shooting. I mean, how do I how do I respond to those situa- to those situations? The COVID situation, you know, that the people people are wondering, how do I handle these things? How do I deal with these things? And I I don't think those I don't think that's going to stop. I don't think those questions are going to stop for God's people and how we respond in this age because I do think that there are a lot of things going on, a lot of things that are happening. I really like your your two Rs rescue and renovation. I it just when, when you were talking, I just thought of an apartment complex like one of those high-rise apartment buildings you see in Chicago. And so people are going in to to fix them up, to re to beautify them, but actually the foundations are falling apart and the building's about to collapse. Mm. So other people are going in to rescue people out of there, you need to get out. Mm. And that it just made me think of that. That's the that's the I think that's our that's our propositional statement, and as far as eschatology, it's a good way to look at it. Mm. So, yeah, as we move forward on this, is there anything that we've left out or anything else you want to say about Amil? Well, I think that one last thing that, that probably we should mention uh, is that the view of Revelation 20, where the Premio guys would say, where I would say that that Revelation 20 comes chronologically after Revelation 19. Uh, I think the Amil guys would see wouldn't see that chronological understanding, and therefore that they would exegetically say that the the millennial kingdom uh, 
is is not a sequential, meaning that Christ's come, return in Revelation 19 isn't sequentially going to to lead into Revelation 20, um, that, that they would see those as more occurring uh, synonymously, I guess you could say, uh, not chronologically. Um, and again, that that understanding and the two-age model would be the two things that they would hang their hat on in terms of understanding kind of a framework of, of understanding the millennial kingdom and the age that we're living in today. Okay, yeah, I agree with that. That's, that's a good way to look at it. I've heard that, I've heard many of them say that it's not chronological. Yes. That it's a, it's a recap. Yes. And that's interesting because that's not the way I've always looked at it, but, but it, I can understand what they... I can understand their their eschatology better by them thinking that. Yeah, and at, at the, again, that's why I wanted to I'm kind of toward the end of the show, but I that's why I wanted to bring it up because we haven't talked about it that it that they do exegetically that's their that's their framework in terms of the millennial kingdom, whereas the primo guy would say that that's sequential or or chronologically given uh, that that Christ's return and then and then the, he sets up this uh, thousand year reign. Um, whereas they would say that that no 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 that's not that's not chronological that it's it's a recapitulation or a recap. Okay, so l- one last thought on Almel. Go. Okay, one. I'll give you 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 asked for one one thought. I'll give you two. One positive, one negative. One positive is that I do understand that it's. I mean, in terms of the simplicity of it two-age understanding I think is it, it makes sense what they're saying I, I think that it's a that that exegetically what what he's saying you know with the age the age that we're in the age to come it does seem like you know this whole idea of a, of a thousand year kingdom is is hard to understand but I would also negatively I would also say that you know in terms of the church you know and and the church and in, ha- in the church age, I don't know that. I don't know that that would was. I mean, that wasn't easy to see from the Old Testament, right? I, I can, you know, that when you know when I was, if I was an Old Testament saint, and I'm looking forward to the the what God is going to do, I wouldn't have seen the church age. I wouldn't have seen the church age at all. And so, for us to say, well, you know, when I. I for us to say, well, it's hard to understand a millennial kingdom that's thrust in the middle of you know Christ coming back and you know the the new heavens and new earth. It's hard to see that, right? I, I can't. Well, that doesn't mean it isn't true, right? It doesn't mean it isn't true, and and the I think we have to let the scripture stand where the scripture stands, and I don't I don't think that. I mean, I think that that Revelation 20 is pretty clear um, in terms of what is going on there. As we wrap this up, hopefully, hopefully it's a little more clear. I know this is it can be it can be kind of hard to figure it out, but hopefully we've been able to clarify some of this. I'm sure people who are on mill would say, "Oh, you missed this, you missed that." But like I said, we're doing the best we can, trying to go through. God's word and and looking at these different views. There is one interpret one correct interpretation. It's not as if there are three different possibilities and 
all three might be true or could all three are true or, you know, aspects of all three. I mean, it, there is really one true interpretation and that's what the authorial intent was. And so what we have to ask ourselves when we view John, you know, and John who authored revelation and you know, when we view the Holy Spirit who inspired Revelation, John inspired John to write, what was the authorial intent of John and the Holy Spirit? Not, you know, what are the three interpretations? And, you know, we need to look at the three interpretations. I mean, we need to look at the different interpretations and try to understand, but we really need, are looking for that one true interpretation. And, and so, I mean, we can get so tight, we can get kind of scientific with this thing and well, it could be, you know, the evidence says this and the evidence says that, but the truth is, is that there is one, one interpretation that's true, that is true and correct. Yes. And I think I mentioned it when we first started with Postmill, our first podcast on eschatology, I was, you know, you, you start to think, could I be wrong? Cause I'm pre-mill and you start studying it and because you want, I want to be biblical, and since we've been doing these, I have, we have been studying, both of us, post, and and ah, and the more I study it, the more I am pre mill, <laughs> so I feel like okay, and like you said, I think it's it's that conclusion mm. that you draw when you study it, mm. and look at it through the way it's meant to be done. Absolutely, well. Uh, let's keep going. Let's keep let's keep studying, and you know we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back uh, over the next few weeks, and we'll continue this discussion and go from there. I'm excited because we're moving into a, 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 an eschatology that I know better than than all the others. <laughs> well, then I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you take the lead on that one. Oh no, 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 Pastor Brandon, it's still all you. Hey, thank you for listening. This is Fresh Bread, a podcast of Grace Bible Church Gainesville. For more information, go to gracegainesville.org. And thanks for listening.